up folks now today's podcast we're going to be talking about saving money on your medical bills and i'm always been against saving money and a lot of people in our group are accredited investors and saving 100 bucks here there really isn't that too big of a deal and i'm always big on getting out of this hustle mentality saving your money and you ask some people what did they like to do for the weekends or some people ask me and I, sometimes i say to myself save money find ways to save money although it's great and that's how a lot of us got to this point as accredited investors. Really, it's, it's not going to lead to a happy life, in my opinion. And this is something I'm trying to work on personally myself. But talking about medical expenses where maybe paid for a big operation and you could save an extra thousand, couple thousand dollars here or there. Now, that's what we're talking about, right? The low-hanging fruit. What are the big things? And this is very similar to what I saw in the retreat, right? When we get a lot of our group together, the financial fanatics, what I notice a lot of the chatter is these kind of small ball type of tax savings or different activities, to name a few, right? Like this S-Corp salary dividend split. People talk about it a lot of times. It's nothing that great. It's not going to save you that much money. You're paying your kids, you know. Paying your kids the, is the basic income shifting idea where you take your high income bracket and you shed it off to your kids who are in a lower tax bracket. Sure, it works. You save a little bit of money. But what I try and teach, at least on the podcast here or the YouTube channel, um, or and especially once you join the club at simplepassivecashflow.com slash club, a lot of the content is surrounded the big picture activities. And hit Simple Passive Cashflow, it's going into good deals with honest people doing your due diligence on that, taxes, and a little bit of infinite banking. And you've got that one, two, three combo. A great example, like I said, like the taxes, it, a lot of it is just strictly going into deals where you get passive income. And now you can use the passive losses to knock that out. The Mr. Rich Dad, Poor Dad, he talks about it all the time, not paying taxes. Although it's always in a strange esoteric manner where he says a gazillion words, to say the same thing, but it goes over the head of even smart people like us. But where I am, I'm that guy who breaks it down pragmatically. Like, what is the actionable steps? And today we're talking about like saving money on your medical. But before we go into that, you know, the big thing here is if you guys want to check out the tax guide, you can go to simplepassivecashflow.com slash tax. And there basically the idea is, you know, you have to go from traditional investments to alternative investments. So you get these great passive losses, which are baked in as depreciation losses. And you can use this to offset your passive income. Over time, you move over from a gas guzzling, ordinary income truck mode, and you go to, let's just call it Tesla mode, where you're burning clean energy and it's very tax efficient. Imagine if all your income was passive income, you could probably knock that out to zero from a tax burden standpoint by all your passive losses. Now, the problem is when you're transitioning from ordinary investments to, to these investments that are passive and are kicking off passive income, but that's just going to take time. And this whole transition from traditional investments, to alternative investments, which kind of goes hand in hand with ordinary income going to passive income is not an overnight thing. So check out that tax guide at simplepassivecashflow.com slash tax. If you have any specific questions, please go to simplepassivecashflow.com slash club. Join the club there and jump on a call with myself. We create a free complimentary call. Now, if you've been listening to this podcast for more than a year, you're the exact person I want to talk to because these calls that I have with you guys are great. 
it's the folks that kind of only listen to a few podcasts. Please go listen to more podcasts. We can actually have a great conversation instead of just kind of me and you wasting our time. I want to talk to the folks who've been diligently listening to the content, checking out the online guides so we can really find ways to help out your personal situation. Because after at the end of the day, this is all personal finance. And I don't want to be one of these internet guys who just talks esoterically and gives these high arching words of wisdom that are really actionable at all. But anyway, enjoy the show. We'll see you guys next time. This is a story about a dude named Lane. He moved to the mainland and bought one place to stay. And then one day he went and tried to rent them out. And then he became one real investor man. What's up, Simple Passive Cashflow listeners? Now, I know you guys have money out there. Most of our investors, or pretty much all our investors, are accredited investors that worth a million dollars or more. Although sometimes you guys pull the wool over my eyes and you make like you're broke. <laughs> I think a lot of that is because most of the folks are first-generation wealth. We weren't born with the money. We weren't trust fund kids. And as such, we have the strong attachments to being cheap and frugal and going after value. Now, today's podcast, I'm going to be talking to Anne, who is going to be talking about getting the most out of our medical dollars and some things to be looking out for. And also for some of you guys who may have aging parents, we've gone through that situation a lot with home sales, reverse mortgages, the options of that getting into long-term care. But I think we haven't really done a deep dive into this topic. We've talked about health insurance, but this is a little bit different. At some point, you're going to get these bills. And basically, if you're if you're like me, you get all these bills and you're just dumbfounded and you're like, all right, how much am I getting screwed here? Yeah, Ann Hester's on here and she is a, she's been a board certified internist for over 25 years, and she's taken care of many patients. So she's going to give us a real insight on the other side from the medical provider standpoint, which I think is going to be very valuable. But going through these topics of picking apart your medical bill and, but thanks for coming on and appreciate you. you having me. Yeah. So let's start at the top, right? Like you get this big bill from your medical provider, then they say, this is not a bill. And then they send it to your insurance provider. And then you eventually get some bill and maybe they just create this big sticker shock and they show you how much money you're saving so that you're just thankful at that point. But maybe talk to us a little bit about what should we be looking at? How can we lower medical bills? So instead of waiting to get the bill, you start at the very beginning. When you go to see your doctor, if you are really prepared for that visit and you can give your doctor a concise elevator speech as far as what is going on, how long it's been going on and so forth, you can expedite your care. The significance of that is when you go to see a doctor and you're really not sure what's going on, you're sitting on a cold examining room table trying to piece through your symptoms, you're going to forget things. And when you don't give your doctor a really good history, and the doctor has five, six, seven other sick patients waiting to be seen, he or she will likely order extra tests that don't need to be done because he's not sure what's going on. But if you can help him pin down the most likely one or two causes, then he can streamline the diagnostic workup, which means you don't have to spend as much money in tests, procedures that can be painful, expensive, and so forth. And you have to get fewer medications that are used as a trial to see if they work. So when a doctor is very confident about what's going on, 
he doesn't need to order all these extra things. He can order one or two tests, usually maybe no test. As far as writing a prescription, finding it doesn't work, making another appointment, going back, getting another prescription, it doesn't work, going through this cycle of trial and error, going back and forth and back and forth, buying all of these medications. That's what you don't want to do. And so when you first become ill, there are things that you need to start thinking about. And I'd like to go through specifically eight elements. And these are things that are very important. Doctors can't just charge whatever they want to charge. They have to be able to, quote unquote, earn it. And so if the insurance company looks at the doctor's record and looks at the bill and they don't correspond as far as the severity of your illness or the complexity, there's a problem. And the doctor can actually even be charged with fraud, insurance fraud, if he is overbilling for the service. So these are eight elements of national evaluation and management guidelines, which your doctor is going to need to use when he documents a new record. Number one is the severity. When you become sick, I want you to think about how severe it is. For instance, if you're a woman, childbirth is a 10. A one is a no big deal. So think about how severe it is. For men, realistically, no childbirth, but imagine falling down and breaking a leg. That's a 10, unbearable pain. So the severity is important. Doc, I can't get up and go to work because it is so severe. That says a whole lot more than it hurts a lot. If you've been listening to the Simple Passive Casual podcast since 2016, you have seen me well change my mind a few times. At one time, I thought buying a bunch of rentals was the way to financial freedom, so you could be that cool guy at the local real estate club with all the other misguided landlords. As I became an accredited investor, I discovered the three-step system that we use today. First, syndication deals where you don't invest with dishonest operators to get better returns than the 401k financial planner garbage. Second step, get passive losses to unlock the tax best practices that the wealthy employ. And last and least impactful, number three, infinite banking. If your net worth is not yet $1 million, check out my free turnkey rental remote e-course at simplepassacashflow.com slash turnkey. All right, speaking to accredited investor to accredited investor, my one, two, three system is very simple to implement, but it requires plugging into a community of purely passive accredited investors like ours. Join our investor club for more insider access. Go to simplepassacashflow.com slash club. Those who are looking to deploy more than $250,000 their first year or make over $300,000 in annual income or net worth over a couple million dollars should really look into our exclusive inner circle called the Family Office HANA Mastermind, FOOM for short. Learn more at simplepassivecashflow.com slash journey. So let's probe a little bit more into that question, right? Because I think myself, if I'm like most of my listeners, all right. Let me go into Webster's Dictionary and let me just figure out all the very severe words and let's sharpshoot this so we can get the most urgent care. And I'm not paying the bill, I guess, my insurance company is, or maybe they are. But I think that's a big thing for me personally. I, every time I go into a doctor, I'm always like, suck it up, buttercup, right? I'm like, oh, you know, that hole in your leg. How's that? <laughs> eh, it's okay. It's like a number three or number two. So you're saying not to do that, right? No. Or... No, be as specific as you can be, because when you're specific, you're helping your doctor help you. And what about, I think a lot of people here, we all go to WebMD and we else ourselves and we're, we might pick some of those. Do we go as far as like picking some of those cut and pasting into our Google note and like what we think we have? Does that not work or you're, you've probably got stories of being a medical provider oh, with this dude's reading off, reading off of uh, what his... He's literally reading off of his WebMD off his iPhone, right? Yeah. Yeah. I like WebMD and I use it. 
it's a very good site, but you have to use it in context. So it's good to go there to research things, but I wouldn't go into the office saying you've diagnosed yourself because that that's not the way you want to go about it. If you go in with your symptoms and other information, then your doctor is going to try to piece this together and certainly say, hey, I read on WebMD, this could be going on. Do you think so, doc? And she'll say yes or no, because. Yeah, this ain't law and order, guys. This, we don't need to uh, get ourselves diagnosed insanity or what you're trying to get here. Just be <laughs> honest is what I'm hearing. There you man. go. But yeah. So what's the, what's the next best tip here? So when you go in, you prepare in advance. That's the most important thing. Also, something that's important when you're in the hospital is to ask what your status is. You assume if you go to the ER and then you end up in hospital bed, you are admitted to the hospital. That's not the case. You could be in the observation status. And observation means you have a bed, you have a room, you may be sharing a room with somebody who is actually admitted, but the insurance company doesn't pay the same amount. You may end up paying for your Tylenol, your IV fluids, pay for everything in the observation status. So make sure you understand what status you're in. And make sure if you're concerned about the cost, let the doctor know. She may not order all the tests she otherwise would have because some things could be done as an outpatient. And so let the doctor know your concerns, what the status I'm in. And then based on that, then that could potentially impact your care. Not the most vital things, but some things that could wait will likely wait. Yeah. But even getting to that point, I think where a lot of us get tripped up is like even wanting to get into that ambulance in the first place because mm-hmm. we're so cheap that we're willing to die <laughs> to save a few bucks and mm-hmm. not worry. Like, it reminds me of Uber surge pricing. That thing is like yeah. 3X. I'm just going to sit there and play on my phone for 20 minutes and I don't want to pay that. But um, look at it like but, this. If you don't get seen quickly, your hospital bill could be 10 times as much. If it's something minor and you wait, then you could be in a bad situation. And unfortunately, few days ago, I lost a friend who apparently waited too long to go to the hospital and she passed away a few days ago. So if you're sick, listen to your body. Regardless, I understand that. I'm too. But if your body is saying something is not right here, that's mean like that you have to get an ambulance call 911. Call your doctor, tell him the symptoms and he'll tell you whether or not you need to go urgently. Yeah. So what's next on your list there? So another thing that I would say is if you have a question about your bill, there are patient advocates, the professional patient advocates, just Google patient advocate in my area, and you can hire a certified patient advocacy to go through your bill, explain things to you. If you don't know what each charge is for, certainly she can help you with that. But before you get there, when you get things done, ask what they're for. Sometimes you may not need those things. So you don't want to run up a huge bill if you really don't need it. I think most like white collar professionals have that service as part of their suite of add-ons as a, as onto their salary employment. So yeah, definitely go and utilize those those kinds of services. And it, I guess it's similar to like on our apartments when something like we have a fire or whatever, we uh-huh. don't fight it ourselves. We call like an, an insurance claims just, adjuster. Yeah, you need to but understand that, that. If you don't have that paid service by your company, is that free? Do they work off like saving you money or? If you have, it's almost look at it this way, like getting an attorney on a re- without the retainer, just they get a percentage. 
So if your advocate is able to save you $10,000 and you end up paying the advocate a thousand, then it's well worth it. So you need to look at what you're looking at and the likelihood that you're going to recover significantly more than you're going to pay for the advocate. Yeah. What's next? Generics for medications. Um, I don't see the point in getting name brand medication unless you really need to, because they have to prove the drug company has to be able to prove that their drug works. And so they're not going to be approved to be a generic unless they can prove that it's a good drug. And so when I get medications, I go generic. That can save a tremendous amount. And drug prescription savings cards, they can save you a lot of money. I use them. I'm not ashamed to admit it. Why pay more? There is There are various pharmacies that have a $4 insurance plan, and you can Google $4 prescriptions, and you can find out who in your area offers that. And you can ask your doctor, hey, this this drug available in a generic form, or can I get this on a $4 prescription list? The newer ones haven't lost their patent, so it's not going to work for the newer ones, but a lot of the medications that work very well that have been out for a long time, they're available with the generic equivalent. And so you can save a tremendous amount. Instead of spending $85, you may spend $4. So that can be huge month after month. Yeah, a lot of that is just the marketing, right? To take doctors out to dinner or lunch. Or- we can't do that anymore. <laughs> I was raised at a time that they could, but they had to. They put a- yeah, that's not, what, that's not what people told me. Or like I do like investor dinners from uh-huh. time to time. And then they always ask me, is this a medical thing? And I asked the dude, I was like, why? What does it matter? And then they're saying like, I guess they can't do it like to go. or And there's some kind of workaround that they work on, but okay. sure it still goes on. But that's where a lot of the money's coming out of. And a drug can't be if a drug company like Pfizer or whatever comes out with a drug, they get dibs on it for what 10 years and then it is allowed to be a generic at some point, right? Is that how it works? They do have get a patent. I don't know the exact number of years. At one point, I think it was seven, it may have changed to 10, but they have to spend a tremendous amount of money in RD. So they are allowed to keep that patent for a number of years. And then after they have recouped their investment, so to speak, then other companies can make the same drug. Yeah, I think, I don't know if this is true, but my understanding was like the government needs to, for betterment of mankind, the drug needs to be made to the masses and made to be allowed to be generic. And I think that's bad for the drug companies, but I think the quid pro quo is the government allows certain companies to get dibs on patents earlier than others. I don't know who knows who the heck knows. And that's why I don't invest in pharmaceutical companies because it's such like a shrouded who gets the deal from the government type of thing. And that's why I like real estate. But uh, but yeah, what's next on the list for people to try out? As far as saving money, something else you can do from a medical standpoint, if you have, if you create your own personal health records, a copy of your own health records, then that can go a long way. Because for instance, you see a doctor and he says, I need you to see this cardiologist. So the cardiologist, you're going to see the cardiologist. If the cardiologist doesn't have all your records, then you're going to end up coming back. He's going to need you to sign a release of records to get the records. And then you have to come back. And that's more time and more money. And if you have the insurance, type of insurance plan that you self-refer, then you could really be in a bad situation. If you don't have any records, you show up at the doctor's office. He doesn't know anything about you other than your name and insurance information. But you have a ton of valuable information. So either you have to wait for him to get a copy of them if there is no electronic access, or he may repeat some tests. And so 
if you consider the cost of getting diagnostic tests repeated unnecessarily, that can add up tremendously. And if the doctor doesn't know the exact diagnosis and he's ordering all these tests, that adds up. So no specifics. Have your own personal copy of health records, and that can go a long way. Then you can say, I did this, and you can cut those costs for sure. Exactly. You can pull out your last EKG. You can pull out your last ultrasound of the heart that was done a few months ago, so he doesn't have to repeat that. So that is huge. I know my natural path, they always like to run those blood things on me. And then I'm sure they're making like five, 10 bucks off each test or something like that. Some kind of markup. I'm sure that's how the world, that's how the world works. It may be. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. We're just saying it's infotainment for people. Read the disclaimer. But what about like the whole PPO, HMO, people, Kaiser, what's your personal take on it? Some of the pros and cons on that whole thing. I think for HMOs, it's a very good, what you're paying is excellent as far as, you know, what you're going to be out of pocket. It does limit your choices. However, for PPOs, you have more choices. For doctors, you're going to be paying more. It's something that a lot of people haven't really learned enough about is the high deductible health plan. So with a high deductible health plan, you might end up paying a premium of $100, $50 every two weeks to your employer. But the insurance doesn't really kick in until you've met your deductible, and your deductible may be $2,000 for the year. Your preventive medicine is covered, so you don't have to worry about that. But if you're somebody who goes to the doctor once every two or three years for something minor, or bad bronchitis or something like that, excuse me, then it may be worth your while to consider a high deductible plan if you're healthy, because if you're going to you have the option of spending $50 a pay period or $300 a pay period to get the high level plan and you're not going to use it, then what's the point of spending all that money? And also they can be linked to health savings accounts, which have some pretty factors as well. So learning about high deductible plans and determining when you're making that decision, if you're going to be a high utilizer of health care, at which point it's worth to spend it's worth spending more money to get the top-notch insurance. Or if you're a low utilizer, then it may be worth keeping that money in your pocket and going for a high deductible plan. Yeah, yeah. I'll definitely echo that. If you're generally a younger, healthier person, go with the mm-hmm. high deductible so you can fund the HSA health savings account. If you're older or a little bit less more prone to these types of expenses. Well, heck, that's what insurance is for, right? There you Guys, go. Like, also mentioned that the health savings account, I'm not a huge fan of IRAs, 401ks, 403bs, even f- especially 529 plans. I think those are the worst, but those are kind of tax sheltered plans supposedly, but you don't get the tax benefits like you do real estate and you have to pay the taxes on it at some point. The health savings account is in similar ways, but one benefit is that you can use it on things. You can it's in, it's like a four hundred one k, but you could take it out at the end without paying the taxes if you use it for health expenses. So that's why the health savings account is superior to all QRPs, qualified retirement plans, and that is why if you can get the health high deductible plan, it makes sense to do it. Of course, there's some problems that putting in three thousand to six thousand dollars, I think, is how much you can put in per year now. It's going to take freaking forever to fill that thing up to a substantial amount if you wanted to self-direct it. Like I personally had maybe 30 or 50 grand in there after like many years of funding my health savings account. Mm -hmm. And then I just was like, this is 
this is, I'm just going to get rid of this nonsense because I got feed to death with the self-directed health savings account people, the custodians. And I just, I made the personal choice of like, screw this. I'm just going to invest my money cash because it's easier to do. And I get the tax benefits to pay no taxes today on my other stuff and forego on the health saving account stuff. But if you guys already have it, then, and you want to put it into the S&P 500 non-tax advantage things, that's what you want to do with it. Now we're get, getting down the road of personal finance, but that's my whole take on the health savings account. And I would add it's more high level, but if you should be filling up your health saving account first before any 401ks, IRAs, because you will need health related expenses than you will ever before you will retire. You're more likely, I don't, I don't know if this is true, but if you guys know what I'm saying, you may not get to retirement. You may die, have some medical expenses, and then pass away before you even get to retirement age. And that's where my logic comes to get fill up the HSA first. But I guess going back, sorry for my little rant there. And but no, it's valuable information. People don't understand the significance. What, what about like the Kaisers, right? The ones where you get to you're under an umbrella and it's a I think it's a little bit cheaper versus like the insurance plans where you get to pick your providers. Mm -hmm. What is your take on one versus the other? I think it depends on how much you want to pay and how much you want flexibility. And so with the HMOs often cost you less, you do acknowledge that you're not going to have the same flexibility. That doesn't mean you don't get excellent care. You can still get tremendous care, the same quality of care. You just may not have all the flexibility. So you need to look at what you're going to pay and your healthcare needs. If you want to see this doctor you've been seeing for 10 years and he doesn't take the HMO and your insurance company, you know, your job changes, you may choose the PPO if you are determined to stick with that doctor. You can always stay out of pocket also. So that's another option. If you want to do the HMO, but you want some flexibility, you have that option of saving the money and spending the extra money for that one doctor that you really want to see two or three times a year. Yeah. Yeah. For the, from the doctor's perspective, why do they not accept the one where people can jump around? Is it because they get more turnover with, with clientele or like, why would, what, what's. I think what, different doctors have different mindsets. I spent a lot of my time in a specialist. I spent a lot of my time actually working for an organization, HMO, which I'm not able to discuss at this point. And the care was absolutely excellent at the HMO, but there could be capitation for the doctors get X amount per month for 2,000 covered lives. And it really depends on all of the rules and regulations of any individual health insurance company, what the doctor's needs are, the demographics of the population, the socioeconomic status of the population. There are so many things that go into a doctor's decision about what to accept and what not to accept. It's not a one-size-fits-all. Yeah, good insight. I always try and understand whenever you have a deal, understand what's on both sides, what are the needs of both sides. I guess transitioning into you have a lot of stuff in your new book coming up um, about picking the right doctor. And this is something that's always befuddled me. You go on the websites and you like see these ratings. And then all, a lot of the listeners here are doctors and they all bang their head against the wall. And they're like, yeah, it's just a crappier Yelp with a bunch of pissed off people posting stars and then fake stars and then your competitor writes reviews and it's less governed by Yelp. So it's absolutely useless. 
And I'm like, all right, so what do I do when I'm trying to find a doctor? There are a couple of things. First of all, if you have an insurance plan that you have to use a panel, provide a panel, look at that panel. Because when you start researching people, unless you are looking to pay out of pocket, you want to be researching the right doctors who actually take your insurance. Ask for recommendations. The doctor who is perfect for your next door neighbor may not work well with your personality. You determine what's important to you. If you work 30 miles from home and you want to be able to see your doctor on your lunch break or when you get off of work, then you may want to pick a doctor who's easier to access there versus if you want somebody that you're who has weekend, Saturday hours or evening hours you want to see from home, then that's significant. So you look at what you want, how conversational do you want your doctor to be? Do you want your doctor to be somebody you can really sit down, open up with, or are you okay with a doctor being somewhat mechanical? This is what's going on. This is your prescription. This is what testing you need to have done. And so you create your list of priorities. And when you go through the doctors, then you will ultimately choose one. You go to see that doctor. And that's like an interview the first time. But before you go to see the doctor, and you've made your list, research the doctor. So certainly there are online sites that will rate doctors. Some of them, they are going to have a lot of doctors, a lot of patients who are angry, upset. But you're also going to see a lot of very positive reviews about doctors who spend extra time and so forth. So I would not completely discount those sites. I've looked up actually several of my colleagues just to see what was said. And a lot of things said were actually fit very well into their persona. So there is some truth for a lot of these posts. Research them and find out their malpractice history. That's something I go into the book, in the book, but you can just Google it and find out how to find the malpractice history. There's actually a website, a general website, and you can go to your state medical board. You can find out the malpractice history. If you've been in practice for decades and you've not been sued at all, that's a great thing. But realistically, the best doctors in the world can get sued. So a doctor has been in practice 20, 30 years, one, maybe two claims. That does not rule out that doctor. You need to look at the whole picture, the whole situation. Again, word of mouth is very important too. I guess, and I guess I'm going to tie this into our investing as passive investors. The same thing. It's not the area of expertise, just like how good a doctor is that I don't have nothing. I know nothing about doctoring. What I just like looking at deals or syndicators. And I'm a syndicator GP. So I know I'm on the other side of the curtain. So I have a lot more insight than the average LP. Mm-hmm. And that's what I do when I'm looking for a doctor. I'll go find another doctor and we've got lots of them. I think my, a lot of my caretakers, my personal caretakers are investors with me. So I don't know if that's good or bad. <laughs> But And I know if, like when I get cancer one of these days, I'll have 20 cancer doctors to help me out and tell me who to work with. But that's, that's like the similarity, the not, that may not be practical for people, but that's the parallel I draw with investing and who do you work with. Nothing's going to give you, nothing replace telling somebody who like as a general partner says, yeah, that GP sucks or like. Well, I would never give my money to that. Just like a, a doc. No, I'm not saying it's the same. It's probably not. Like, well, you know, there are some saying, similarities. Both matter. People who've yeah. experienced things matter. Maybe if I were to say 80% of syndicators are brand new under a billion dollars of assets under ownership. Good luck, Buttercup. Let me know how it goes. But maybe doctors, it's like a small minority are 
you know, I've watched if you're a doctor and you know that doctor and you're like, I don't want you pick these other 80%. That's, I think that's what I'm looking for when I I talk to people I know can, I trust. And I think that's why I say, well, build relationships with other passive investors. I don't know how you would do this for doctors unless you have a doctor friend, which typically, you know, for our clientele, they know a doctor or lawyer or CPA within their ecosystem, which is why mm-hmm. I, your network is your net worth and that all stuff. But I guess that's what I'm looking for. It's like, is, Anne, is this the one I shouldn't be having being my doctor? Give me a thumbs up or thumbs down. I'll move on to the next one. But I think that's what I, I always try and do things a little bit differently than the review site. But what you're saying is if you don't have any doctors in your ecosystem, then you got to just use the review sites then and Google you them. Use that. That's part of it. And also the word of mouth information out there about the doctors and also their malpractice history. They've been sued 10 times. Then you keep moving, move on. So do your research. And there are so many ways you can do it online referrals and other ways you can find out what's going on with the doctor. And then the first time you go, if there's not a good match, it's okay. Move on. Just like with your, with investing, if it's not a good match, you move on. So if you don't have the good feeling about that person, you're in the waiting room, people are grumbling, can't believe this doctor did this, he did this to me. Look at, just keep your eyes open because information is going to present itself. You just have to be mindful of the information when it comes. Yeah. And I, I don't know if this applies to finding a doctor, but I know with investing, sometimes take referrals with a grain of salt. Like we, we just completed the retreat recently and usually half of the people are new. The other half or more in our mastermind inner circle, the family office, Ohana. And I always tell people, there's a reason why we put the FOOM badge on people because they they have been with us a while. Some are newer and that's where you really got to even take a grain of salt with them. But they they may not know who is good, even though it is a referral, right? Maybe on the doctor side, just because somebody is nice, a doctor is nice or has good, what do they call it, bedside manner, doesn't mean they're conscientious when they're actually trying to pick apart the problem. I guess same, I'll stay on my side of the investing house. Just because somebody has good systems or their investor relation teams are great, or they work with you one-on-one, doesn't mean that the operation side of the house is typically different. And in a good company, investor relations and operations are disconnected. They're very different. It's two different skill sets. It's left and right brain. And one does not mean in the other. I would rather have a good operating team and a piss poor investor relations group that is unresponsive and rude. Obviously, that's not the case. And sometimes it's reflective of the management on the C-suite level, of course, inefficiencies and problems that arise that aren't handled. But I'm just pointing this out that... Just because certain things are a certain way doesn't mean that that's not, at the end of the day, what's the goal? When you're investing that you don't, you work with honest people that are going to steal your money and of course, work your money the best way. And maybe in this respect, the doctor, the best care. And me personally, I don't really care how kind they are to my face, but every each to their own. Yeah. Any other money saving hacks of people to kind of those are pretty much the most significant things that people need to be focused on. Yeah, yeah. So I guess thanks for jumping on the other side, being a caretaker yourself over 25 years. And what kind of made you jump ship and come on this more advocacy side, I guess? I've always had a passion for empowering patients. So the book I wrote, Patient Empowerment 101, More Than a Book is an Adventure, 
is my attempt to help patients understand how to expedite their own care, lower their costs, and just make the healthcare system stronger. Yeah. So we call this the Han Solo moment where like, you know, normally when investors listen to the podcast, so they actually take action, invest, do an infinite banking plan, and or even educate themselves, there's usually some kind of pivot point that happened, they lose their job. What was it for you that kind of that doctor salary, at least is pretty cushy, right? Like what was there a specific well, thing I, that I happened or? No, I have not retired, completely retired from medicine. This book that I wrote, this is just the culmination of decades of seeing tremendous waste, tremendous suffering that's unnecessary. So this just goes alongside with what I'm doing. It's not replacing it. Yeah, I like it. I like it. The side gig. Get a little 1099 action, do yourself you a little S-corp salary dividend split. Don't pay self-employment taxes on the dividend side. I like it. I like it. <laughs> Two offices, commuting to work, that kind of stuff. And then also helping other people and fueling your passion. It's a beautiful thing. And what? how do you want people to get a hold of you? Or you, you want people to check out the book and dives into more detail what we went high yes. level today. It's called Patient Empowerment. 101, more than a book, is an adventure. You can get it on Amazon or you can go to the website, patientempowerment101.com or patientempowerment101.blog just for more information about how to empower yourself. All right, Anne, appreciate it. And for those of you folks who aren't in the club, go to simplepassivecashflow.com slash club. We talked about topics such as this that pertain to our financial well-being. You get access to a lot of free e-courses in there. And once you're signed up for that club, sign up for that onboarding call with myself. I still do those, even though my staff tells me not to. But yeah, I want to make a connection out there with folks. And I'll see you guys next time. This website offers very general information concerning real estate for investment purposes. Every investor situation is unique. Always seek the services of licensed third-party appraisers and inspectors to verify the value and condition of any property you intend to purchase. Use the services of professional title and escrow companies and licensed tax, investment, and or legal advisor before relying on any information contained herein. Information is not guaranteed as in every investment there is risk. The content found here is just my opinion and things change and I reserve the right to change my mind. Above all else, do your own analysis and think for yourself because in the end, you are the only person who is going to look out for your best interests.